welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Most merciful God, we confess to you that we have sinned against you in word and in deed. We have done what we should not have done, and we've left undone things that should be done. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry for, your, for our sin. We humbly confess it. And we ask, Lord, that you would apply, even now, the blood of Jesus to all of our sins, that we would have our consciences clean and clear, that we'd come before you boldly to receive grace and help in this time of need. And we pray, Lord, that as we open your word, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would show us wonderful things. Lord, we pray that your son would be glorified above all things. We pray that he would be glorified in our hearts above all things, that nothing else would compare to the beauty and the treasure that he is for each heart here. Lord, we pray that you would show us his glory, show us your glory, and, and have us be changed by that, Lord. We know that seeing you is what will change us, and we pray, Lord, in the scriptures that we'd have that sight of your holiness, your beauty, your majesty, your value, such that we would be transformed from the inside out. We pray that you would do this for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. So as some of you guys probably noticed when David was reading the passage, this is actually a, uh, one of the tricky, confusing ones. And if you didn't find it tricky and confusing, you're in a minority in church history because this has been a very tricky and confusing passage, especially verses eight, verse 18 where it says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they were formerly disobedient in the time of Noah. Okay, you read that and you're not like, oh yeah, totally. And I doubt most of you have that like on a bumper sticker because you'd confuse the public. You probably don't have it on a coffee mug because you'd probably confuse yourself. And so it's a tricky passage. Martin Luther said this. He said, this is a strange text and certainly a most obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still do not, do not know for sure what the apostle meant. And if you don't know Luther, well, he lived hundreds of years ago, but that was unusual for him. He knew what everything meant, right? He was a very confident man. And so for him to say something like this says that we're in a kind of tricky passage. Um, and one of the things you, that I think I need to say at this point is we believe in something called the clarity of Scripture. And the clarity of Scripture means that the Scripture is written in such a way to be understood by ordinary people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who seek God's help and want to obey it will be able to understand it, okay? In certain church traditions, there's this sense that, like, oh, the Bible's so mysterious, it can't be read, it's so confusing. Leave that to the priests, leave that to the pastors, leave that to other people. We don't believe that about Scripture. We believe that Scripture is written in such a way uh, that it can be understood by ordinary people, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you want to do what it says and believe what it says. And, and that's an important thing. Now, the clarity of Scripture does not mean, though, that every passage is equally clear, okay? And it does acknowledge that some passages are less clear. What the clarity of Scripture does say, though, is that the Bible is for God's people to read for themselves, to enjoy for themselves. I mean, look at Deuteronomy 6. It says that, um, that parents were to instruct their kids in the Word of God while they walked along the way. So an average Hebrew dad was able to understand God's Word and explain it to his kids while they were walking along the way. There are some trickier passages, but the clarity of Scripture tells us that everything that one needs to believe to be saved and everything that one needs to do to please God are clear, okay? But we are in a tricky one, okay? And honest people disagree about this passage. I am confident that I will disappoint most of you 
with my interpretation on this passage today. So I'll just say that up front. It's very likely that you, if you study this, believe something different about this passage and are really attached to that interpretation. And that's fine, okay? I just got to go with where I'm at. But um, let's do this first. Let's say, what's the big picture? This sometimes helps. So we'll look at the context. What's the big picture of this passage? What is Peter intending to do and what he writes here? And what Peter's intending to do from verses 14 through 22, which David read, is he's communicating to a minority group of Christians in a massive empire that's hostile to them, getting more and more hostile to them. And they're called to witness openly about Jesus. And they're being encouraged to, even if necessary, suffer and die for Christ. That's the big picture. And then what we want to do is we want to zoom in and go like, okay, how does whatever interpretation this is has to somehow connect to all that, okay? And so Peter's telling these vulnerable people that suffering and death are actually the path to victory. Look at verse 14. He says, if you suffer, you are blessed. You guys believe that this morning? If you suffer, you are blessed, verse 14. Verse 14 also says, have no fear of them. This would be people that might insult you or harm you for Christ. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Verse 17 says, it is better for you to suffer if that is God's will, right? And so Peter's saying here that as Christians, we should be good with suffering and death, okay? And I know as I just dropped that, that goes against every cultural thing you've ever been taught, but Peter's saying that as Christians, we should be good with suffering and death. We should see that when we suffer or die for Christ, that we're blessed. We shouldn't be troubled or afraid of people who don't agree with us. Okay, We shouldn't be afraid or troubled. We should see our own suffering and death as God's good plan of victory for us. And it turns out that that's part of discipleship, guys. Part of discipleship is becoming good with suffering for Christ, Part of discipleship is learning to trust God's good plan for us in whatever suffering we have, whether that's gospel-related persecution or that's sickness and suffering and family things and all these. Part of discipleship is becoming good with that and trusting God. Part of discipleship is preparing to die well. You just realize that? That's part of discipleship, is learning to die well. And this tricky kind of artsy passage here really should have the effect of making us better with suffering and better with death if that's what God's called us to, okay? So that's the big picture. That's what it should do. Now, notice that verse 18 starts with the word for. So in 17, he says, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then he says for, okay, so this passage connects to that, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they did not not formally obey in the time of Noah. Now, this tricky passage is also super savory, and it does actually help us be more okay with suffering and death, believe it or not. And there's three main questions that I have in this text that will help us figure out what it is. And I've got a slide here of the text, and I've got three sections circled. But we want to figure out, okay, when Jesus proclaimed to spirits in prison, when did he do this proclamation? It says he went. When was that? The next one would be that word proclaim. Some of your passages have preach. It could be, it means just proclaim. It doesn't mean necessarily good news is being given. What was that? And then who are the spirits in prison? Piece of cake, right? And so I might lose you, okay, over the next seven minutes. Don't despair. If I lose you in the next seven minutes, I'm going to come and I'm going to pick you up and I'll take you the rest of the way, okay? So if I lose you in the next seven minutes, I don't want to, but I could, okay? 
So let's go. There's four kind of main interpretations that, that I've heard. The first one would be is that some people say that Jesus went spiritually after he died, but before he was raised, he went spiritually down into hell and proclaimed the gospel to people, giving them some sort of second chance of salvation. Okay, that's a, a fairly old view. Um, it's a kind of universalism. It's very popular now, again, but it's always been popular. We've always not been comfortable with the idea of hell, not comfortable with anybody being there, and so wanting some way that, like, in the end, nobody ends up there, and so that's what some people would teach about this passage. There are many problems with that. First one would be is that the word pneuma here for spirit, when it's in the plural, is almost never used of people, dead people or alive people. The word spirit there is almost always used of malevolent spiritual beings, demons, okay? Almost always, that word spirit. One exception would be Hebrews 12, where it talks about the spirits of righteous men made perfect, but in that it says specifically they're people, okay? But in all the rest of scripture, it's always demons, okay? Now, the word spirit is used of people, but it's always the word psyche, not pneuma, okay? Um, Another thing to notice, and why I don't think Jesus descended into hell to preach the gospel to unbelievers to give them a second chance, is that that word prison is never used in the Bible as a word for where people go when they die, okay? Um, It is used as a place of containment of spiritual beings, though, but never of people, okay? Uh, Another thing to notice is, is that nowhere in this text does it say does it give any of the standard words for hell or the place of the dead? So it doesn't say Hades, it doesn't say Tartarus, it doesn't say Sheol in here, none of that. The other question I'd have is if this is offering salvation to all the people that live before Jesus, um, giving them the gospel, then why bring in the whole Noah thing? Why would you only offer a second chance to that particular generation? That'd be strange, right? Um, the biggest problem, though, with it is that Hebrews says it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Pretty straightforward. There's no second chances after we die. Other thing is, this passage would be a really weird way to encourage people to die for Jesus because it's saying, like, don't worry, people can get saved later, right? So I think we can scratch that one off the list. Um, Second one would be some people say that Jesus went spiritually between the time he died and was raised to go and announce the good news to dead Old Testament believers that their salvation was accomplished. So the idea being Old Testament believers, they were saved through Jesus, but they weren't actually able to enter fully into heaven yet. They were kind of in this waiting area. Jesus comes down and says, I've done it. I I earned, you know, your salvation. They all go up to heaven. Um, This is, this view has a good pedigree. This is what John Calvin believed. Um, it is, has some of the same issues, which is pneuma, the word spirit here, is not used of people usually. Um, and it also says that these spirits were specific spirits, ones that were at the time of Noah. So it's not saying all Old Testament believers, it's saying some very specific spirits, which I believe are not people. Um, it, all, it also says that these spirits were disobedient. Okay, so that's a problem. If you're saying, hey, this is Jesus kind of taking all of the Old Testament believers out of this kind of waiting area into heaven, the problem is is that these were disobedient spirits, okay? So it doesn't seem like they were Old Testament believers. Another view, this is where I lose you. It's fine, I'll pick you up in a moment. Um, Another view uh, is that what's going on here is it's talking about how Jesus, before he became a man, preaching to the people of Noah's time through Noah, okay? And this was a common one, Reformation-type view. Um, This one was held by uh, Augustine and Aquinas. I held this view until two weeks ago, so, um, which is that Jesus, um, back in the time of Noah, was preaching through Noah to the non-Christians there, and that this didn't actually happen during Jesus's, uh, between his death and resurrection. You guys all confused? Problems with that passage is pneuma normally means demons, not people, and the sequence is weird. It would be weird to say 
he suffered, he died, he was raised, and oh, by the way, thousands of years before he preached through Noah, it's kind of weird, and then he ascended, you know, it's kind of like, it messes up the sequence. And so, um, it feels like a game of Twister, that one. Now I'm going to slow down, because this is the one I want you to believe, which is that after Jesus rose from the dead, and either before as he ascended, he announced his victory over the demonic realm, who were behind the rebellion in Noah's time. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Wayne. Uh, so I got Wayne with me. I don't have Aquinas, Augustine, Calvin, most of you, but I got Wayne. So I'm feeling good. More interaction like that would be perfect. Anytime you guys really feel like I'm right, that'd be cool. So, so what I'm saying is that Jesus, he, he, he suffers, he dies, he's, he's resurrected, he proclaims his victory over the demonic spirits who were the ones that were involved in the rebellion in Noah's time, okay? So these spirits in prison are demons. They were disobedient in the time of Noah. They were kind of leading this kind of rebellion against God. And he goes and he proclaims, not in that he's preaching to them good news, but he's proclaiming their defeat, okay? Advantages of this view is that pneuma is being used as for demons, which is the way that word for spirits normally used. You might say, well, why these demons? They're the same ones. You know, you might say, why about the demons in you know, Noah's time? Why would he? They're the same ones as today. They're all the same ones. We don't get new demons, right? Okay. You guys are like, wow, there's a lot of demon in one message. I know. And it also fits the temporal sequence. You have him suffer, die. He's made alive. He proclaims. He ascends into heaven, verse 22. And it fits really well with verse 22. Take a look at verse 22. He says that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, those are often used as words for demonic powers, have been subject to him. And also, guys, this would fit the context really well because it would be a massive encouragement to these people. It would be a massive encouragement to the people he's writing to that suffering and death, Jesus' is suffering death, is the path to victory. Now, one of the questions I had about this view, and you may be wondering this too, is would his original readers have known about Noah and demons and this rebellion and all this stuff. Could we expect the average person in Asia Minor re receiving this to know this? And actually, yes. In Asia Minor, um, it was very well, Noah was actually very well known. Not just amongst Jews, but amongst Gentiles. Kind of like today. I mean, you mentioned Noah. There's a movie. What's the movie about the guy building the ark? He's like a corporate guy, builds an ark. Evan Almighty, there you go, okay? Kind of like that. But uh, Noah was a bit of a folk hero in that place in Asia Minor. He was a prominently known biblical character like today. And in fact, a little bit after this, they were even pagan coins minted with Noah and his wife on them. I would love to collect those. I don't know what they would cost on eBay, but, you know, there were coins that were minted. These are non-believing people, not Jews or anything like that, mint coins with, with no on them. And there were traditions that circulated there um, through sources like First Enoch and stuff that these traditions kind of embellished what's going on in, in Genesis and talked about how demons were involved in this rebellion. And they added a lot of details, which Peter's not saying here that all the details in First Enoch and all that are true, but what he's doing, because he doesn't even quote it, he's connecting to it. What he's doing is he's saying, I want to tell you about Jesus' victory over evil, and you guys have this knowledge of this story, and so I'm going to connect it to that. So that, I believe that's what he's doing here. Peter is bringing in Noah here in order to connect Christ's victory over evil to their popular cultural traditions, okay? You like, guys are good. Okay, this seven minutes is up. Now you guys come back in, okay? This view fits really well with the idea that suffering and death are the path to victory. And I have this little chart thing that I think is helpful on this, but... Um, so verse 18, take a look at it. 
Christ suffers for our sin, right, in verse 18. Also in verse 18, he's put to death in the flesh, okay, so he dies on the cross. And then also in verse 18, it says he's made alive in the spirit. I take that to mean that the Holy Spirit brings him back to physical life. He's resurrected, and then he proclaims his victory over evil spirits, and then he ascends into heaven and takes authority over um, all angels and authorities and powers and are subject to him. I think that's what's going on there. So you guys are like crystal clear. Take a picture of that, and yeah, I think you're good to go. All right? But guys, and we know this from the rest of Scripture, that Jesus actually was victorious on the cross. The cross was not a defeat for him. He actually defeated Satan and demons and evil and death on the cross, which is crazy amazing when you think about it, that Jesus would have defeated the great foe Satan by letting evil people crucify him. That he would actually destroy the power of death by dying. That Satan, when he thinks he's bringing his worst against Jesus, is actually accidentally shooting himself in the head, right? And so there's this great defeat that, that Christ did on the cross. The theological term for this is Christus Victor, Christus Victor, which is a Latin term. It means Christ the victor, and it means that Jesus had victory over death and evil and Satan and demons and all that on the cross. The backstory of that is, is that God, in Genesis 1, created human beings to reign over the earth as his um, kings and queens over the earth, and God reigning above them and them reigning over this for God. But what happened was, devil, Genesis 3, comes in, he deceives them, they rebel against him, they lose their reign over this place. Humans were supposed to have a much higher place in the world, they don't. Um, Satan took over that reign, so that you see in the New Testament him being called the ruler of this world, and the prince of the power of the air, and the god of this world, right? That's the kind of age we're in. And then and it's all happened, this evil and death and all this in the world, because Adam let it in. He let it in through his disobedience to God. You think of the old story um, in the old Greek story of Pandora's box. It's kind of like that, right? That by disobedience to God, he opened up a way for evil and sin and death and demons and all the terrible things that are in this world are through that disobedience of Adam. And he couldn't take that, just like Pandora, couldn't take it and shove it all back in the box. No human being has the power to do that. But Jesus, the, the better Adam, who was prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the one that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, he comes, he obeys God perfectly, he pays the sin debt for us, he defeats Satan's reign over the world by the cross, and now humanity has been restored as the king over the world in the human, Jesus, God and man, king, Jesus, over the world. Isn't that awesome? That's crazy amazing, because you didn't know all that was happening, right? We think of the cross as paying the debt for our sin, which it did, but there's other things that Jesus was doing on the cross. Satan's defeat, guys, is now total, but he's not yet been removed. And a way to think about that is, you know, World War II, you had D-Day and V-Day, right? So you have the day that the decisive victory was won, and then later you have the full-on surrender of the Germans and all that. We live in that time period. We live in a time period when you can still get hurt by Satan and suffering and death and all those things, and we all know that. But victory is assured. Victory is assured because of Jesus. Jesus has come and defeated all evil and shoved it back in the box so he can make the world new when he returns. That's Christus Victor. Isn't that nice? I love that. Okay. So as Jesus ascends, verse 18, he proclaims this victory over demonic spirits on earth that their doom is sure. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, those are spiritual ones, by putting them to open shame, triumphing them over the cross. You can imagine this open shame. You can imagine like when Satan realizes like, okay, like this was supposed to work and this totally blew it. You can imagine like there needs to be some splaining, 
right, amongst the demonic. Like, whose fault is this, you know? Who did this? There's open shame, guys. It's a shame what they went through. And he's triumphed over them. So verse 18 is Jesus proclaiming to those spirits not their salvation but their defeat. Revelation 12.12 says that Satan and demons have been cast down to the earth. And it says that the devil has come down here in great wrath because he what? He knows his time is short. Isn't that interesting? He knows he's losing. He knows he's losing, and his wrath is great because of it. He would love to take that out on you. He he knows that he can't win. He's just trying to inflict as much damage, as much harm in the meantime by doing things like in your relationship, sowing sowing strife, creating confusion, spreading suffering, tempting us by playing on our disordered desires. He's just trying to create as much damage as possible, but Jesus has defeated him. He's still active, but Jesus has defeated him, and he will remove him completely soon. This text reminds us, guys, that suffering and death is the path to victory over evil. That's how Jesus won. That's how we win. That'll be our path. As you live faithfully in Christ, as you live openly about your hope, and you're not afraid to share the gospel with others, then as you suffer, and maybe you suffer for Christ, and maybe you just suffer because of the fallenness of this world, you know, cancer, autoimmune disease, all, all the ways that we suffer, right? As you suffer and die, you win. We win through suffering and death. It is better, verse 17, to suffer for Christ doing what is good because persecution, suffering, and even death is the path of victory. Jesus' death was not a defeat. It was a victory. Your death is not a defeat either. It's a victory in Christ. And you think, oh, wow, that's cool. So how do I how do I get to have that victory? Because you might say, okay, well, I understand how Jesus got victory through his suffering and death. But how could my suffering in this world and death be a path to victory? And and that's where he connects us again to Noah. Look at verses uh, 20 and 22. Peter wants to connect us back to Noah. He says this, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, that's Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives, eight persons were safely brought through water. Now, Peter wants to connect these Christians and us. He wants us to think of ourselves as being in the same situation as Noah and these people as being in the same situation as Noah. You can think how it, how it fits for these original readers. They were an extreme minority, Noah and his family, right? You got the whole world against God, eight people not, right? Extreme minority, same situation. They lived in a wicked culture, right? That was actively empowered by the demonic, same as as the original reader, same as our time. They were called to witness boldly, right? Noah and his family, these people, us, called to witness boldly, same thing. And their lives looked strange, right? The lives of these first century Christians would look very strange to their culture. How strange does Noah's life look? I mean, you guys saw Evan Almighty. That looks strange. Strange is building a gigantic boat, right? Strange is building a gigantic boat nowhere near water, right? And so his life looks strange. It's building of an ark. He had a questionable life. Remember Peter, he calls them to have lives such that people will ask for a reason for the hope within us. We're in the same situation. We should be living lives that are so strange to our culture that they would be like, what drives you? You know, what, what keeps you going? And we'd have an opportunity to share the gospel. I guess a question for you would be, does your life look like ark building? Is there something about your life that you're like, that's weird. I need to ask about that. That's what the Christian life's like. They were also awaiting a coming judgment that no one else believed was coming, right? You think about Noah and his family. Think about these people. Think about us. We're awaiting a judgment that no one else believes is coming, right? Same situation. And then they were ultimately saved and vindicated and victorious when they sailed away in that boat, right? And so will we be. He'll save us 
He'll vindicate us and we'll be victorious. Peter is here connecting uh, Noah's situation and ours. Now, how how were Noah and his family saved and vindicated? Look at verse 20 again. It says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then we get to this really interesting next part. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he's saying here, he's saying, like, okay, we're not saved by the physical act of baptism, right? We have, we have baptism scheduled and, and, that, and, and going under the water and, and being immersed in water and, and having yourself cleansed externally, that's not what saves us, right? He's saying it's not the physical act of baptism, the removal of dirt from the body. It's what it symbolizes. And you think, well, okay, what does it symbolize? Well, just as Noah and his family were bought, brought safely through the waters of God's judgment by being in the ark, we are brought safely through God's judgment waters by being in Christ. Isn't that amazing? I'll, I'll do that again for you guys. And you guys are all back from the seven minutes, right? Okay. Just as Noah and his family were brought safely through the waters of God's judgment by being in the ark, we, notice the tense, we have been brought safely through God's judgment by being in Christ. He's the greater ark. Isn't that amazing? And the judgment's already happened at the cross, right? We've already been brought safely through. That's what baptism symbolizes. Baptism symbolizes our union with Christ, that we are, in God's mind and through the power of the Spirit, connected to Jesus in such a way that he considers us being in Christ the way those people were in the ark. Romans 6 says that baptism is a symbol of how we've been united in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so um, when a person gets baptized, they, they go under the water. It's to symbolize them dying to their old life. It's also to symbolize that they've been connected to Jesus, that when he died on the cross, that that death has been effective for them. And then when you're raised up out of the water, it's like his resurrection. It's like you coming forward to a brand new life. That's the amazing beauty of all that. And we had a little confusion with uh, one kid in our church that was, uh, heard that and thought, oh, so when somebody gets baptized, they die. You know, because um, kids are very, uh, what do you call that, concrete, right? Not good at symbolism. They're like, oh, no, you, know, you don't die. It's a symbol of dying with Christ. It's a symbol of God's death being applied to you and being raised up again. Baptism is a symbol of our union with Christ. Because we're united with Christ, Jesus was treated on the cross the way we deserve to be treated. Okay, just as the waves of God's judgment battered against the ark with Noah inside, the waves of God's judgment battered against Christ on the cross with us safely inside. I'll do that again. Just as the waves of God's judgment battered against the ark with Noah safe inside, the waves of God's judgment battered against Jesus on the cross with us safely inside. You say, well, I wasn't there. God thinks of it this way because you trust in him. He thinks of you as being united with Christ. Jesus, like the ark, guys, was battered for the sake of those who were in him, okay? Just like that ark was battered for the sake of the people that were inside, Jesus was battered for the sake of us inside. When he died on the cross, he died a death we deserve. And this is really cool, but guys, as a Christian, being a Christian means that your judgment day has been moved from the future to the past, okay? All the world, every human being is a sinner. Every human being is looking down the barrel of God's judgment, And what happens when you come to Christ is, here's the cross, here's you, here's your judgment day. What happens is, when you trust in Christ, is your judgment day was moved to the past, to the cross. There is no judgment day for wrath for you, because Jesus endured it on the cross. Do you like having your judgment day moved to the past? 
in Christ and having been totally taken care of. I mean, this is an amazing thing. That's what the gospel, that's different than any other religion. This is Jesus doing it for us. And now we're treated the way Jesus deserves to be treated. He talks in here about a good conscience. Um, we receive a good conscience because he died for us, cleansing us of all our sin. We get all the benefits of Jesus' victory over death because we're in him. Now our suffering and death becomes a path to victory because, of, because we're in him. All those benefits. Now, and, and, and I want to say to you guys really clearly, the only way you get the benefits of Jesus' victory is by being in him. Okay, the people that were alive during that time, and there was an ark there, they could have known about the ark, they could have known about God's promise, they could have known about God's faithfulness. But if they didn't get in the ark, they're dead. Okay? Same thing today. We have to be in Christ to be spared from the judgment to come. You have to be inside. How do you get in? You get in by repenting and believing. Same way they would have gotten in. They would have been like, I'm leaving my old life, and I'm coming in here, and I'm going to take refuge in him, right? A lot of the passages in the New Testament they talk about believing in Jesus. It could also be translated believing into. That when you believe in him, you actually enter into him spiritually so you get all of his benefits. And if you guys have trusted, guys, in Jesus Christ, the greater ark, then you should be baptized. And it's a symbol, guys, of that union you have with him. That in him, you have already passed through the waves of God's judgment safely in Jesus. This is nutrient-dense, this passage, Right? So this proclamation that Jesus made as he, he, he suffers, he dies, he's raised, he announced victory over demons and all the powers of evil, and then he ascends, it assures us and it assured them that suffering and death are the path to victory. So guys, when we suffer, we need to remember we're blessed. And when we um, are concerned about sharing our faith, we need to not have any fear of them nor be troubled, right? Christ has made it so that our suffering and death are the path to victory. And when we suffer and die, we need to see it as God's good plan, his way of victory. Guys, life is extremely short. Yes. Now, those of you who are maybe in your 30s don't know that yet. I'm 44, and I'm like, I could go at any moment. It's crazy how it just speeds up, right? Like, this is a fast process. This will be over quickly. And we have already, guys, grown way atta too attached to this life. I want to do a little illustration for you, which, you know, with the way all the other things are going today, I don't know how it'll go. But let me do a little illustration for you. And this is an illustration. It's actually like, uh, it's a Francis Chan illustration. Although the way he did it was very, it was different. It was very Chanian. But, um, okay, so this is your life. From the beginning of this string to this little black sliver, okay? This is your life here. This is birth, death, all the suffering and stuff like that that happens in between. That's all of it, right? That's your whole life. And, um, but is that your whole life? And Christ is not your whole life, right? It's a very small part of your life, right? We love this part way too much, guys. I mean, look at how brief this thing is. I mean, let me have you, Wayne, just hang on to that, kind of lift it up a little bit. And then let me just head back here. So, this is the rest of your life, right? In Christ, you have this thing called eternal life, which started as soon as you came to believe. You want to just loop that around your arm, and then I'm going to pull it. You got to let it kind of slide through your fingers. Boy, this is getting complicated. It's quite a web. So, I have, so this box, believe it or not, has 6,500 feet of this. I could walk down to Newport, and this is over a mile, right? I feel like it's not still coming. So, this is what it's like. So, birth death, you're raised to the Bali resurrection, and then your life continues like this. 
we've grown a little too attached to this part, haven't we? And this part right here has all kinds of evils in it, right? Satan, demons, death, suffering, hardship. And we fear this stuff so much, don't we? I do. I'm of a disposition that I wake up every morning trying to think of what I should be afraid of. It'd be a great survival instinct, you know, if I was in the wild. It'd be perfect, you know, but when you're in, when you're in Menifee, you don't need that. But guys, we worry about this. It's so brief, right? We worry about everything that's in this little thing. We worry about things like, I mean, in this little black sliver, you have things like, I'm going to trip. You have things like cancer. You have things like autoimmune disease. You have chronic pain. You have um, some of us, you know, burdened with different mental illness issues. You have, you guys worry about bankruptcy? I do. I worry about the U-Haul truck coming and having to leave my house because I'm losing it. I mean, I can think of everything, right? And, and they're all in this little sliver, right? We worry about, like, the estrangement we have to our families. Will we ever be reconciled with them? And, and then especially we worry about death. I mean, if you're like me, you worry about death. You think about death a lot. I think about death every day. Do you guys think about death every day? How many of you guys think about death every day? Mostly men. Isn't that interesting? I got this coin. Yeah, you're in the club, though. Um, <laughs> I, got, I got this memento mori coin that says, remember, one day you will die. And I carry it with me all the time. We worry about all those things. Those things, guys, are in this little teeny sliver. That's a good one. I don't want to wear you out. This text reminds us, guys, that Jesus has conquered every single one of the evils that are in this little sliver here. So that nothing that's in this can keep us from this everlasting victory. And a lot of times people talk about heaven. It's timeless. It's not timeless. It's never-ending time. It goes on forever and ever. We're going to enjoy the victory of Christ, right? Death, resurrection, victory, forever. Guys, when we believe this, we will share Christ freely. We're not going to have any fear of them. Why would you have fear of people? You got this? You're going to fear them here? That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? We're going to share Christ openly. We're going to be willing to give our lives for the unreached. Would you give this for the unreached peoples of the world? If God was calling you to do it, I'm not saying he's calling every one of you, but some of you he probably is calling. Would you give this if you've got this? Would you withhold this? If he was calling you, you wouldn't, right? That'd just be absurd. It'd be crazy. This part's better, by the way. <laughs> this is resurrected body, presence of Jesus, no evil, no death, no suffering. I mean, you're like, well, is it going to be as good? Like, come on. This is the, the dark portion here, obviously, right? And if we believe this, guys, we're going to be ready to suffer and die well. I'm not going to be afraid of death, right? I meditate on this week, and I'm good with dying right now. I mean, I'm not you know, you know, volunteer or anything, but, but if someone came through that door right now and said, who are the Christians we're going to kill you? I'm like, I'm ready because I've been thinking about this. Am I always ready? I'm not always ready. That's where we have to get our minds renewed, right? Guys, we will no longer fear any evil. It's conquered. Hebrews 2.14 says, since we share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself partook of the same so that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. I just want to ask you, Christian, this morning, have you been delivered from the fear of death or are you still in, in that lifelong slavery? You know, he has done something here, his victory over death, so that we don't have to fear whatever could happen to us here. Through his death and resurrection and uh, his suffering, he has conquered evil so that we can't lose, guys. You share the gospel and they insult you, you win. You share the gospel and they hurt you, you win. You get cancer and have to be faithful to God through that, you win. 
You get afflicted with mental illness or an autoimmune disease or Alzheimer's or any of those kind of things, and you, and you suffer faithfully for Christ, you win. Isn't that amazing? Take all your wealth, all your property, you win. They imprison us, we win. You die, you win instantly. Okay? That's the quick win, right? No evil can come upon us without pushing us further to victory, right? Romans 8 says it this way, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long and is regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to to separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus. You guys, the apostles knew this. You guys read Acts? You know, they're preaching the gospel and like, hey, stop doing that. We're going to beat you up. You know what they said? I'm so happy to be counted worthy to suffer for his name. And they're like, all right, then we're going to imprison you. And they're like, oh, well, good. I have some letters I need to write. And uh, I don't think all your guards know Jesus yet. And they're like, okay, we're going to kill you. To die is gain. You're like, what do you do with people like that? Right? Revelation 12, 11 says that they have conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they love not their life, that little black sliver, even unto death. Guys, and there's so much more goodness coming for us in this part, right? You know, there's so much more goodness coming to us as we follow Christ into his victory after this life is over and the new life starts, and he wipes away every bit of evil. You remember like with the story of Noah, going back to that, that, that God wiped away the evil of the world and they came out into a new world. He is going to remove all evil and make this world new. And just like Noah, you know, pops open the hatch of that ark and comes out onto that, you know, dry, refreshed ground, one day we're going to step out into the soil of the new world and enjoy the full effects of Jesus' victory over evil. All suffering and death removed, all victory ours because you're in Christ the victor. Mm. And the Lord's Supper, guys, reminds us of that union. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we're united with Christ. The Lord's Supper reminds us that, that we've come inside the true ark for safety. And if you are, if that's you, if you've come in, into Christ to be saved from your sin, we'd invite you to come up and take the cup and the bread. The bread's gluten-free, so you don't need to worry about that. The bread reminds us, guys, of his body, of his body that was battered by the waves of God's wrath so you never have to be. That's what the bread reminds us of. And the cup reminds us of his cleansing blood that has washed away every stain of sin you have. Some of you guys have come in here and you have a particular sin on your mind. You've trusted in Christ. You have a particular sin in your mind that you're thinking like, no, no, I still carry this. And guys, there is not one sin in this room that is stronger than the blood of Jesus. Okay? So if you're going to say, oh, you know, I don't, I'm kind of still on the outside. I'm kind of the leper here because I've done this or this was done to me or whatever. What you're doing, and I want to just tell you, is you're denying the power of Jesus' blood. Okay? You don't want to do that. There is no sin in this room that is stronger than the blood of Jesus. And may the Father now feed us on Christ by the Spirit with that holy food, even as he's just fed us with his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your victory that you've wrought in Christ and that it's ours. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on that never-ending string of life that we have after this one. We are far too easily attached to the things that are here that are fleeting. Father, I just want to pray in the words of uh, Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Father, you are our mighty fortress, a bulwark never failing. You're our help amidst the flood of mortal wounds prevailing. 
Even though our ancient foe seeks to work us woe, his craft and his power are great, and he's armed with cruel hate, and on earth is not as equal. If we would trust in our own strength, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. Our striving would be losing. But you have given us Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts is his name, from age to age the same, and he has won our battle. And Father, as we worship and as we take communion, Lord, help us to remember that the right man is on our side, Jesus Christ, your son, and that he has won the battle. And so as the hymn goes, though this world with devils filled should seek to undo us, we will not fear, for we have willed, for you have willed your truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we don't tremble for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And so we say with, with that song, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, your truth abideth still, your kingdom is forever. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.